This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Laracasts. Laracasts is the de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels. Whether you're new to Laravel or you're hoping to level up your dev team, Laracast was constructed entirely and exclusively for you. It's a lot like Netflix for your career. I think there's over 500 videos on there right now covering all sorts of topics from Laravel itself to different backend tools, front end frameworks like Vue.js and React, design patterns, how to get better at Git. There's something on there for everybody. So check it out if you have a chance at laracasts.com and thanks again to laracast for sponsoring full stack radio enjoy the show hey everyone welcome to episode 38 of the full stack radio podcast where i talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration uh today i am joined by jb rainsberger who's probably most famous for his uh integrated tests are a scam presentation and uh, accompanying writing how's it going jb it's going well thanks very much for having me on do you go by JB normally or Joe? Uh, I don't mind either one. Uh, I sort of adopted JB as a somewhat professional sounding moniker. but uh, So everyone who sort of knows me outside of software calls me Joe. And the people who know me inside software, I tell them the same thing. Whichever one makes you happy is, is fine with me. Sounds good. Cool. So um, I guess for anybody who uh, doesn't know you, do you mind just introducing yourself and kind of giving a bit about your background and kind of, you know, how you got into the whole software thing and why you're so into the testing side of things, I guess? Absolutely. So I started as a, as a programmer uh, almost 20 years ago at uh, IBM in Toronto and uh, spent, a couple, spent a few years there. Uh, IBM was a great place to learn. But it's also a fairly typical, large-scale, dysfunctional enterprise context. So that meant that there was lots of opportunities to learn. And uh, it just, I just so happened to be starting to try to understand why I was such a terrible programmer at a time when uh, extreme programming was becoming popular and programmer testing was becoming rediscovered. And programmers were starting to slowly starting to take responsibility for the quality of their work again in a way that they hadn't done for evidently about 15 years. So I was sort of right place, right time. I was one of the first people to write about how to do programmer testing specifically with JUnit. I wrote a tutorial over the Christmas break in 2001, and all of a sudden people started seeing me as uh, one of the JUnit guys. And it kind of went from there. Uh, I started attending conferences on uh, extreme programming and later agile software development. Got to be known a little bit in that uh, in that part of the community, and uh, have more or less been doing that ever since. Awesome. So the thing that kind of kicked off this conversation, me, me and you got into a discussion on Twitter about kind of testing things that interact with external services and uh, and stuff like that. The thing that I think is interesting about that that I guess kind of got it started was I feel like um, there's a lot of talk in the programming community in general about um, trying to test things in isolation, you know, uh, unit tests are kind of king, your whole kind of testing pyramid, trying to have as little integration tests as possible because, you know, they can kind of grow exponentially in the amount that you need if you're trying to cover all these different cases. But I found most of the interesting part of testing for me lately has been in coming up with good strategies for testing things that interact with things that I don't control, right? Like stuff that talks to Stripe for billing or stuff that has to perform operations through like the GitHub API and change some state in their system that somehow I have to verify that I'm, I'm making the correct calls there. And I feel like it's a topic that 
Uh, we don't talk about as much as we talk about kind of, you know, isolated unit testing, your business logic and stuff like that. And uh, I thought it would just be interesting to kind of talk to you about this idea in general and kind of find out um, what your opinions on it are. And if you have any interesting strategies for handling that sort of thing that fits in with like the rest of your testing philosophy that uh, people could learn from. Yeah, this is an area where my, uh, I think... Well, of course, because it happened to me, I think it happens to everybody. So I think of it as sort of a natural evolution. I think uh, a lot of people, when they look at test-driven development for the first time, and I know you weren't talking about that, but I promise it's related. Um, When they look at test-driven development for the first time, especially because the word test is in it, they have a tendency to think of it from the point of view of a programmer trying to do what they would loosely call unit testing. And I think this is sort of a natural thing, when, especially when clients uh, ask me about TDD training. If I talk to them for more than about 15 minutes, what I typically find out is that their biggest problem in the moment is um, mistakes, bug rates, uh, defect rates, whatever you want to call it. I prefer the word mistake because I find that a little bit more honest. Um, and so they have a tendency, they look for test-driven development because that's the term they hear a lot, even though what they're really need more than anything else is to find their mistakes uh, sooner so they can fix them more cheaply or at least sort of get under get out from under the weight of all the mistakes that they've made and either not yet detected or not yet taken the time to fix so far so they're really interested in programmer testing as in testing that programmers do in order to give them confidence that their stuff does what they think they wanted it to do as opposed to test-driven development, which goes more into using tests as a feedback mechanism to improve the design. Now, I mention this because it's related to, I think, how people tend to address uh, testing issues, and especially when they start reaching for mock objects or test doubles, as I prefer to call them now. I first became interested in this stuff for exactly the reason you bring up, the idea that I have code that interacts with um, a database or with a, uh, back then it would have been an EJB or a network service or even stuff on the file system. And if I write integrated tests, that is tests that run my code and that external resource together, then as you point out, it not only blows up the number of tests that we have to write to check all the permutations and combinations of behavior, but those tests are also slower. And so, and especially they were a lot slower 15 years ago compared to these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so that prompted me to look for what is the, where's the happy zone? Where's the nice compromise between feeling confident that I know that my stuff connects to their stuff okay And having tests that run quickly enough that I'll run them frequently and having tests that are clear enough that where it's clear enough that I'm testing my stuff and not their stuff. So this is, I remember going through a period in sort of the mid to late 2000s where one of the buzz phrases was, um, don't test other people's stuff, test your stuff. We want tests that focus on my stuff and I want to be able to, when I test other people's stuff, knowing that I can't control other people's stuff, I'm not really testing it in the sense of seeing if it works. I'm more testing it in the sense of understanding what it does. And I think that's probably one of the, that's probably the primary way that my attitude towards this has changed over the years. So early on, 10, 12 years ago, I would have focused on 
you know, figuring out the dividing line between the last layer of my stuff and the first layer of their stuff, putting mock objects or test doubles there so that I could simulate the expensive external resource and not have to connect to the real thing. So then I would do things like um, simulate, you know, in Java terms, I would simulate the JDBC library, or I would simulate the file library, or simulate the HTTP uh, library, uh, because I wanted to test all the way up to the last layer of my stuff, connecting to the first layer of their stuff. And I did that for a few years, mm -hmm. and it helped, because it helped me understand when the mistake was I wrote bad code, and when the mistake was I misunderstood what their code does. And that was really helpful for me. Like, I really benefited from having this clear division between I don't, uh, I made a bad guess as to how their stuff works compared to I wrote bad code for myself. Because then at least I could isolate the problem and I knew whether I should fix my mistake or change my assumption to match however their stuff works. And then um, I remember reading for the first time, uh, I think it was the... I think it was the endo testing paper. It was the one in which, I, 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 I can't remember exactly which paper it was, but it was the one where the phrase, don't mock types you don't own came from. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, at the time I didn't get it. Like when I first saw that, the first thing I thought was, that's crazy. And then after I read about it and thought about it and tried it more, then I ran into my favorite example of why you don't mock types you don't own. And so for the Java programmers out there, uh, if you have an IDE handy, uh, open it up, open up your good friend, the result set interface, and look at how many methods are on it. Now, the nice thing about result set is it's an interface, and interfaces are easier to mock. You don't have to worry about bytecode manipulation libraries in order to be able to intercept method calls. You can do that with straight old Java 1.3 dynamic method invocation handlers. You've been able to do that for over a decade. Very simple. But you look at the result set interface. Now, the last time I looked, it had like over 140 methods on it. This, to me, is the number one reason why I use um, test double library as opposed to rolling my own. Because if I want to roll my own test double, I have to implement 140 methods, even though I really only want to simulate one, maybe two of them. Yeah. So that's the first thing I noticed. The second thing I noticed is there are lots of methods on there that although they're on an interface... Those, those groups of methods sort of need to do similar things. So like get string, get int, get float, they all sort of need to behave the same-ish way. And so if I simulate one of them, I need to simulate all of them in the group to sort of behave the same way if I want to be safe. Otherwise, I have to know exactly which of those methods I'm going to call, even though that stuff could change at any time. Yeah, and then you end up kind of leaking implementation details into your test. You, right, you have two choices. One is, to, one is to have your tests depend on implementation details that you don't want to, or that you end up starting, have to, it's starting to have to implement, implement sort of a lightweight version of the thing you're trying to simulate. My favorite example there is in session. So in session or in request, uh, HTTP request, HTTP session, you have things like, or HTTP request, you have get parameter and get parameter map. Now, my code should be able to change its mind whether it wants to use get parameter or get parameter map. But if I simulate those, I have to know that, well, if I simulate get parameter A to return 1, then I should simulate get parameter map to return a map that has A mapping to 1. Yeah. I don't want to have to start re-implementing part of HTTP servlet request or whatever uh, implementation I'm going to use. Mm -hmm. That, to me, 
I used to think of that as sort of a, the cost of doing business. And, and I, I changed my mind over the years that this is a sign of why you don't want to mock types you don't own. And, it, and the, the argument for me kind of goes like this. The reason I do test-driven development is not because I want to test, but because I want to use tests to give me feedback about the quality of my design. Why do I want feedback on the quality of my design? Because I want to improve my design. That's the only reason I care, right? If I have no intention of improving my design, then why the hell do I want feedback? It's completely useless to me. So if I'm going to get feedback on my design, I'd better be prepared to change my design in response to that feedback. I'm not going to be able to change the HTTP server request. I don't have the authority. I'm not going to be able to change HTTP session or result set or any of those library interfaces. That's just not, I don't have the authority to do it. The only way that I can do that is by building little adapters and chain or bridges and changing the interface to something that I actually want to use. So what happens? Let's say I know I want to use the HTTP library a certain way. There's sort of five key use cases I have. So I build these little things that talk, talk to the very general purpose, slightly ugly HTTP uh, library. I have my own little way of using it. I extract interfaces for my own five ways of using the HTTP library. I have these little adapters that then talk to the Java standard, you know, whatever, java.net.http, whatever they call it. I find it much easier to extract the interfaces for those adapters because those adapters, there's two things about them that are nice. One, because they're better suited to the way I want to use HTTP, they're likely to be more stable. And they're likely to be, or actually, let me, let me back that up. They're more likely to be what I want. And when they're not what I want, I can change them. So it seems to me that if I, instead of now wanting to extract interfaces and use test doubles at the integration point between my stuff and their stuff, it seems to be much more helpful to make that one layer back so that instead I want to make the big heavy dividing line between my stuff and the point where I'm forced to integrate with their stuff. And so what I do differently now than what I did then is that's where I tend to put those interfaces and where I focus on the isolation. So I like to isolate not the very last layer of my stuff from the first layer of their stuff, but the second last layer of my stuff from my adapters. And then those adapters are the only place where I integrate directly with their stuff and where I therefore write tests that integrate directly with their stuff. That's where my integrated tests live. Yeah. So now I talk about sort of three, three parts to any art design, sort of my, my universal architecture. So you have an inside circle that I like to call the happy zone where everything runs in memory, talks to interfaces and nothing bad ever happens. You have total control over everything. You can refactor to your heart's content. Everything's beautiful. At the very outside is the horrible outside world. That's where all the frameworks and libraries and standard stuff lives. That's where stuff gets complicated, where you have to write to files and sockets and uh, there might be asynchronous behavior and all kinds of com uh, complications. And then in between is the demilitarized zone. That's sort of where I put code there, but I try to put as little code there as I can. It integrates directly with the horrible outside world, and it offers services to the happy zone through interfaces. And then I have a really simple rule. Arrows never go from the happy zone out. Okay, can you expand on what you mean by that? So you have, think of, uh, in, your audience should have sort of in their head sort of two concentric circles, the smallest circle inside the happy zone, 
The next bigger circle is the demilitarized zone, and the rest of the universe is the horrible outside world. Yeah. So the demilitarized zone is the adapters. Those are the adapters that take, they integrate to all the stuff that we need to actually get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, they export those services through interfaces. And those interfaces can live inside the happy zone because the interfaces don't need to write to the files, write to sockets, any of that kind of stuff. They make that stuff available through nice, convenient abstractions. So that means that the adapter layer talks to the horrible outside world, exports their stuff as interfaces into the happy zone. So you have sort of, it uses the outside world as libraries, but it it creates, it almost like it exports these tiny frameworks to the happy zone. And the happy zone just says, well, I know I'm talking to storage, and that storage could be file system, Android external storage, active record, I don't care. So that means that everything inside the happy zone talks to other stuff inside the happy zone. And when the application wants the happy zone to talk to files and sockets and all that kind of stuff, it picks adapters that that implement those interfaces that talk to files and sockets and whatever. So the application is the only one who knows that that thing inside the happy zone is actually talking to the ugly file system. All it knows is it's talking to storage or a repository interface or something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, and so as I like to joke in my courses, if you ever draw an arrow from the happy zone out of the happy zone, you're fired. Yeah, so the happy zone, for example, if you have a billing interface and you have an implementation of your billing gateway that uses Stripe as the back end, nothing in your actual kind of central happy zone area is ever going to know about Stripe. There's never going to be a Stripe reference anywhere in there. It's just going to be talking about billing as an abstract concept. Right. So you could, so yeah, gateway is a perfect word. So if you're, if you know, if you're a fan of Fowler's uh, patterns of enterprise application architecture, then that's exactly how he used the term gateway. Um, You know, it's an interface that allows access to some horrible third party service that you don't want to depend on directly. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it's well known, I guess that that is a good way to design software and and we talk a lot about testing the stuff that's on the inside the stuff that's easy to test in isolation where you don't have to do weird stuff but the thing that i'm finding interesting i guess is strategies that people are using to test that demilitarized layer right and so here's what i've so once once i describe that then there's a couple of there's a few useful strategies that that i can sort of describe as let's say, unnervingly simple rules that they're sort of sound too good to be true. One of them is that, that you don't draw arrows. Nothing in the happy zone ever depends on stuff outside the happy zone. If you ever see yourself wanting to do that, then you know that you're missing an abstraction. There's a dependency in the wrong direction. That's what the dependency inversion principle is all about. So in particular, uh, what that, one of the consequences of that is another principle, which is that I want code to flow from the demilitarized zone into the happy zone over time. So one of the things about architecture, especially sort of traditional ideas of architecture, is that you know architecture tells us where we should put stuff. And I used to worry an awful lot about that. Like especially if you're working in sort of the outmoded, uh, enterprisey model of one smart person sitting on a high chair in the corner who makes all the decisions and then hands those decisions down to the grunts to type in for them they feel pressure to sort of create these architectural guardrails so that, you know, hey, even an idiot could put code in the right place. We'd love to think that works, but I think we've spent the last 30 years proving that that doesn't really work. So I don't like to think so much about where code should go as where code should flow. 
Because we have a tendency, when, especially when we're using libraries that we've never used before. I remember using the Stripe Ruby library for the first time. And you know, you're typing like you have no idea what's going on, but you're just happy if you can make anything work. Yeah. The simplest thing is just to start using the Stripe libraries directly, write code in a simple script that runs it directly, you know, make sure that you're pointing to your test account instead of your live account so that you don't have to refund your own credit card, and off you go. Um, after a while and you start to feel comfortable with the two or three things that you've learned Stripe does, the mistake often that programmers make is they continue to keep putting code in the little part of their system that talks directly to Stripe. And even code that doesn't need to talk to Stripe, but just happens to sort of be near code that has to talk to Stripe, ends up going into those things that they call adapters, but really start growing bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And there's some of that code that could flow into the happy zone. And so one of the things that I, that I teach programmers and that I practice for myself is in ruthlessly looking for code that's currently in the demilitarized zone that could be moved into the happy zone. And my goal over time is for those adapters to remain as thin as possible, that they really are limited to just the individual lines of code that actually need to call Stripe, that actually need to call Active Record, that, that actually need to call the file system, that actually need to load and store data from uh, a database or from a file. And so this is especially like Stripe as a library, it's a little easier to do that well. When we're working in frameworks, it's so easy because frameworks are so seductive. They tell us, like, it's like the creepy hug, right? They're like, okay, <laughs> just put your code here. I promise I'll take care of it for you. And the more code you put directly in the extension points of those frameworks, the worse it gets. Anybody, any programmer of a certain age who has written code in, say, struts, or even just the old servlet API, or who worked in the early days of Rails, um, know, really understands the creepy hug problem, where you just put your code directly in the framework extension points and everything seems okay until all of a sudden it isn't. And then when you try to run everything, you try to run anything and you have to run the whole system in order to run any part of it. And that's the antithesis of what we're trying to do. But it's natural. When I don't know how a framework works, the easiest thing is to just run the whole container, put my code directly in the framework extension points, do some poking around and seeing what happens. And my, my strong advice, my basic guideline is don't stop there. Once you get comfortable with code working in the framework extension points, look for opportunities to pull that code out of the framework extension point. And what's left behind is the bare minimum code that you need to connect to the framework. Because a lot of that, like one of the classic examples is in writing controllers. So you write controllers for your, your you know, to handle web requests. And one of the things that you start doing is you start using things like either um, uh, request validation or parsing request information because, you know, everything comes in as a string, but the rest of your system doesn't want to deal with everything as a string. Sure. A lot of that parsing validating stuff ends up stuck in the demilitarized zone. Why? Why? What, what about parsing strings into numbers, timestamps? Uh, uh, dates, any of that stuff, has anything to do with HTTP? Nothing. The only thing it knows is that HTTP is going to format my date a certain way. Okay, fine. So your code depends on a certain date format, but none of that has to do with the HTTP protocol. That's just an accident of the way HTTP happens to like to 
format dates. So there's no reason for that parsing and validation stuff to be in the framework. Mm -hmm. That can just be a simple library that your controllers can use and that your happy zone code can use. All that stuff can be in the happy zone. So I think that something that's kind of interesting, the way that you phrase that is I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, but I think there's a distinction between the idea of like a happy zone and then also like your application domain. I think I've conflated them in the past and I think a lot of other people conflate them because a lot of people would say like, well, my application logic shouldn't have to be concerned with the details that this incoming data is going to come in as a string and I actually need it parsed into an integer. So So that should be handled in the adapter layer. You know what I mean? That's the argument that I th- I would see people making there. So how would you kind of clarify that subject or question in general? Right. So again, I'll, I'll relate this back to a similar problem in another part of the industry, and that is why I no longer say unit test. Because as soon as I say unit test, I get into a 47-minute long argument about what a unit is. <laughs> so I, that that is totally uninteresting to me. Like, I used to care about that stuff a lot. And actually, if you, I mean, anybody who follows me in social media knows that I care about the meanings of words. It's a big deal to me. But when there are certain terms that just become so warped or overloaded or uh, that attract such differences in interpretation or understanding that eventually I sort of let go. And that's why I now talk about either, when I want to talk about how big a test is, I talk about micro tests or... Uh, or uh, integrated tests. If I want to talk about the purpose of a test or the audience of a test, then I talk about the difference between programmer tests and customer tests or business tests or examples. Uh, We like to use the word example because the word test sometimes makes business people nervous. So since tests and examples are the same thing, I say example to business people, they get it. I say test to programmers, they get it. Um, Or, you know, we can talk about um, the purpose of a test, whether it's their... I, I want an isolated test or an integrated test. Do I want to check individual components on their own so that I know where the faults are? Or do I want to check that the system more or less solves the problem I intended it to solve? And that's where I would use either an isolated test or an integrated test. So by using sort of these terms, I think more precisely articulate the thing that I care about at a given moment, concepts that end up being conflated when we talk about the difference between a unit test or not a unit test, which is why I don't say unit test anymore. Same thing applies here. I used to make a big deal about the distinction between domain logic and application logic. And you know, application logic can be things like the way, I, the, the, the way that I need to parse and format things or the way that I need to um, unpack requests and, and uh, pack results. Uh, responses, whether that's HTTP, uh, you know, is it an HTTP request on the way in? Is it uh, some other protocol? All that kind of stuff. From domain logic, which would be, or business logic, which would be like, you know, these requests assume that the customer's age is at least 18 or, um, you know, when we talk about pending orders, we really mean orders placed within the last uh, three days or orders whose status is P, whatever. Um, I used to find the distinction between domain logic or business logic and application logic difficult because something that looks like application logic to my application looks like business logic to someone building a HTTP request response framework. Like that's their domain, but it's my application. And so instead, that's why I sort of came up with these, 
you know, sort of ridiculous sounding on purpose names. Um, you know, I, I, I like to talk about, that's why I like to talk about happy zone, demilitarized zone and the horrible outside world. Or I, if it's legacy code, I talk about the horrible gelatinous blob. Part of it is a, part of it is a psychological trick. You know, it's a, it's kind of a funny, strange, quirky little name that acts as a good mnemonic device. It's sticky. But also because I don't want to get into the argument about whether this is in the domain of the problem or not. I, I, what I care about is, here's the stuff that can run entirely in memory and doesn't need, that can run either entirely in memory or entirely in a plain process or virtual machine, compared with the stuff that needs to integrate with the expensive external resources that kicked off this whole conversation. Because that isolation, that, or that, that division tends to be architecturally significant and it also makes a big difference in the way that we test. Because now, the only place where I write integrated tests are, uh, are, at, uh, are in the demilitarized zone. Because what goes in the demilitarized zone is either the, um, where I learn how to use third-party stuff, where I write learning tests, or uh, Feathers call them uh, characterization tests, right? Tests designed not to answer the question, am I doing what I wanted to do? but instead answer the question, does that library do what I think it does? Does that framework behave the way I think it does? So those learning tests are there strictly to clarify my understanding of what that library or framework does. And I'm going to write those tests. Of necessity, those tests are going to use the horrible outside world directly. Any code that I extract from that into my application will go into the adapter layer. They'll go into the demilitarized zone because that is the integration point with Stripe, uh, Spring, whatever. Um, now, the other big realization that I made years ago was that none of those tests, none of those integrated tests, have anything to do with my particular application. Maybe that's overstating it. None of those tests depend on the details of my application, and in particular, information about the domain of my system. This is where I think a lot of people get into trouble. They, they start by trying to implement, you know, some transaction script in their system. Uh, you know, I want a report of all the customers who have pending orders. So they start there. And eventually they get to the point where they want to build their query, SQL, ARL, whatever library they're using to do a database query so that they can figure out that they're selecting and joining correctly. When they then, then they get to the point where, okay, I want to make sure that I can retrieve rows from the database correctly, that I'm using the database library correctly, that it maps rows to my domain objects correctly. Oh, I have to make, I know that this row contains some timestamps, so I want to make sure that I get, you know, parse the timestamp correctly, or it contains numbers, and I want, or it, it's storing money in cents, and I want to make sure that I convert that to euro correctly in my code. They end up, because it's convenient, and because they happened to be working on find all the customers with pending orders, they end up testing that stuff within the context of, let me create some customers with pending orders and see if that works. Let me create some customers without pending orders and make sure that works. Let me see what happens when there are no customers. Let me see what happens when there are customers with no orders, and so on. And then, when they want to do the same thing for some other transaction script, they end up writing a lot of the same tests for show me all the products that uh, are show me all the products that are published to the catalog as opposed to products that aren't published to the catalog. Show me all the products. Let me make sure that when I ask for all the published products, 
I get the products that are scheduled to be published now, but not scheduled to be published in the future, blah, blah, blah. And they end up writing a lot of the same kinds of tests because they don't go one step farther. When I want to see, do I map data types from my database library to my Java library correctly, I don't need to care about customer, product, order, any of that stuff. I could put my entire application aside and write a test that says, okay, I'm going to write a test directly for my database driver, database library, whatever it is. And I'm going to create some rows with some data and there will be timestamps that are null, that are formatted correctly, that are formatted with date but not time, that are formatted with time but not date, that are formatted wildly incorrectly, and see what the library does when it tries to parse that stuff for me. I don't need to test any of that stuff with any knowledge of how I'm going to use it in this particular application. What I'm testing at that moment is not my application and not even the database or my database tables. I'm testing my understanding of how the database driver works. So why do I, why do I write those tests within the context or uh, in terms of how my domain works, in terms of customers and objects or, or, and orders and, and products? Who cares? I really only care about all the different ways that my database will store dates, times, numbers, blobs, clobs, images, PDFs, whatever. And that, I think, is what, that's one of the big differences. When I put that, that big dividing line between the last, the next to last layer of my code and the integration with their code, then I have a very, very clear place to delineate the tests for behavior of my application from the behavior of the third-party services I'm integrating with. So then I can write tests, learning tests, for the Stripe Ruby library, and I can reuse those tests in every application I ever write in Ruby, that version of Ruby that integrates with that version of Stripe. And when I need to upgrade, you know, when I, when I, do, bundle in, when I do bundle update, and I see there's a new version of the Stripe Ruby library, then I know, hey, I better run those tests again and make sure that nothing I depend on behaves differently now. And if it does, stop the line, fix that, or, hey, I better downgrade back to the earlier version of the library. But that's true for all the projects I'm running that need to use Stripe in Ruby. So just to, just to clarify, when you're talking about learning tests, are you talking about writing a test that is working directly with the API that the library exposes to you? Like if you're downloading Stripe's official Ruby library, you're writing tests that are just using that library directly in the test code to verify that things are working the way you expect? So yes and no. Uh, you're talking about a special case. So a learning test, just again to make the, the terms very clear, sure. a learning test is just a test I write that confirms my suspicion or assumption about how some third-party code works, or actually how some code works. I might need to write learning tests for my own legacy code, for example, mm -hmm. because I wrote it three years ago and I don't remember what it does or somebody else wrote it. Is it just kind of like an alternative to spiking stuff out and looking in the database yourself or looking what shows up in the Stripe UI yourself? Well, well, yeah. So the, 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 the idea of a, the, the only thing that makes a learning test a learning test is your attitude when you write the test. So when I test drive code, I'm specifying what I want to behave I expect the test to fail, then I write code to make it pass. Yep. With a learning test, I'm writing, I'm writing a test that's uh, a guess about how something behaves, and I hope it already passes. Because if it passes, that means, yes, I understand how it behaves. And if it fails, then 
I have to ask myself, did I misunderstand how this third-party library or how, my, how this other code works? Or did I just write the test wrong? Sure. And so learning test or not is just a question of my purpose. Most learning, one of the most common ways to use learning tests is to write the uh, integrated tests with some third-party code. And I might extract from those learning tests what will eventually be the production adapters that talk to Stripe, Spring, Active Record, whatever. So not all learning tests are integration tests at, in that sense, but that's one of the most common ways to use them. Sometimes it can just be, hey, I have never worked in Smalltalk. I'm going to write some learning tests to understand how the Smalltalk standard collection library works. Mm -hmm. And then just to be clear, these tests are not part of your normal test suite. That you actually right. I, so what typically happens, again, I worry less about where to put things and I care more about how things flow. So what often happens is I'm in the process of making some feature work. I identify a need for some learning tests. I write the learning tests directly in my application. And then I realize, hey, these learning tests have nothing to do with my application. They're actually, they're like classical acceptance tests for active record. So remember, I know Agile, the Agile community had sort of the, the meaning of acceptance test has kind of drifted over the last 20 years. But when I first started programming, acceptance tests were the tests that you wrote that documented how you used some vendor library so that when they tried to ship you a new version, you would run your acceptance tests and they would tell you whether to accept the new version of the, of the library or not. And if any of the tests failed, then you had to pick up the phone, as we did back in the late 90s, pick up the phone and talk to your vendor and say, hey, you changed some stuff. Is it a bug or was that intentional? So that's sort of these learning tests act kind of as acceptance tests. It's documenting my understanding of what this code does, probably because I can't change what it does. And so the best I can do is not just poke around in a REPL and figure it out and then forget it and then have somebody have to rediscover that same stuff four months later. But the learning tests provide a kind of documentation and ex uh, you know, uh, uh, an example by example documentation of how to use some part of a third-party library. So now if you come along, you know, if you join the team and you need to do some integration with, with Stripe and you've never used Stripe before, one of the first places you can look is in our, in our learning tests. And yes, over time, those learning tests flow out of my application into a separate little project for uh, how we use Stripe at jbrains.ca. Sure. But they don't, they don't necessarily run in like your CI chain or anything. Um, I wouldn't use them. So I wouldn't run those tests every time I wanted to, every time I changed code in my application. But I would run those tests every time I needed to use a different part of Stripe. Or every time I had a, if I had an error in my integration with Stripe, I'd want to run those tests. If I started to use some new part of Stripe, some new feature they hadn't released before, or something that I'd never needed before then I would want to write more learning tests for Stripe and eventually those tests would flow into that suite. And then of course, if, you know, if Stripe upgraded their standard library, then I'd want to run those tests to make sure that the stuff, the part of Stripe I cared about still behaves the way it used to. And so those tests wouldn't run in the same CI chain as my application necessarily, unless, uh, well, no, not unless. So over time, 
as I said, over time those tests would flow, I would write them in my application and then those they would flow out of the application into a separate little project that I could run those tests. I mean, I could just run them every week for the hell of it to make sure. That could be a way to detect, for example, hey, there's a new version of Stripe, the tests pass, uh, you have the option of upgrading any time and it'll be safe. Yeah. Or Stripe, there's a new version of Stripe, a test failed, don't upgrade, don't, don't call bundle update until you figured it out. So in your application-specific billing adapter that's using Stripe, when you're testing that adapter, you know, the adapter that exists in the demilitarized layer, are the tests for that hitting Stripe servers? Um, so this is, this is where it actually gets, this is where it gets a little bit more interesting. This is sort of the last um, piece of the puzzle. Because if billing, is the first, if billing is the first time that I've needed to integrate with Stripe, then yes. And so now we have the problem that um, my billing adapter needs to talk directly to Stripe. And so if I write tests for my billing adapter, the line between testing my billing adapter and testing the Stripe API is extremely fuzzy. In fact, there's probably no line. But what happens when I add uh, invoicing? What happens when I add... Uh, customer management, and I decide that I want to use Stripe's customer management for whatever reason. My, my needs are modest, so I just use Stripe's built-in customer management stuff. So these are going to be separate interfaces to your application, though. That right, so all these, all these are going to be exposed to my interface as, you know, um, initially as billing service, customer service, invoicing service, and eventually maybe I can find more meaningful names than those, but that's good enough for now. Sure. And those service... Uh, you know, those service interfaces end up inside the happy zone because none of those things depend directly on a Stripe concept or on a Stripe library. They might, yep. m they might mirror some things in the Stripe in the, the payment domain, but none of them depend on Stripe directly. So there's, there's, it's almost certain that there's some aspect of the way I need to use Stripe today, like maybe it's the authentication part, that's going to be the same for my, you know, so I have billing service and then I have my Stripe-based billing service. Yeah. I have my Stripe-based invoicing service, my Stripe-based customer service. Those three are going to use, there's going to be some, some duplication among those three guys and how they use Stripe. What do I do with that duplication? So um, anyone who's read my stuff before knows that I'm a, a you know, I, I, I like to, if I don't know what else to do, I like to fall back on the first principles, which means... Um, I go back to Kent Beck's um, Four Elements of Simple Design, which over the years I've uh, boiled down to remove duplication and improve names. So when in doubt, remove duplication and improve names. There's going to be some duplicate code in there, almost certainly. Now there's two possibilities. The first possibility is that the duplication is in the part that actually touches Stripe. So the, the three, uh, three service implementations end up using the Stripe API the same way. They do some stuff that then figures out which parameters they need to send to a Stripe method call. And the, the Stripe method call itself, and maybe a little bit of code in front of that, is what's duplicated. Well, if I extract that duplication, what do I have? What used to be the Stripe adapters are now some bookkeeping code and the part that actually talks to Stripe. Now, the bookkeeping code doesn't actually talk to Stripe. Maybe it just talks to some... It does some parsing or it does maybe it's curries some functions or I don't know what it does but it does something that then sort of massages data to get it ready to send to Stripe 
Or maybe it takes the response we get from Stripe and it turns exceptions into response codes or it turns response codes into exceptions or whatever. So the part that actually talks to Stripe still needs to talk to Stripe. The rest of it doesn't need to talk to Stripe. It's doing something else. Well, now I can break those things apart. And what I have, what used to be the last layer that talks to my adapter is now a layer that talks to the part of the adapter that doesn't need Stripe just yet, which then talks to the part of the adapter that does need Stripe, which talks to Stripe. So what used to be the Stripe adapter is now, I can now split that into two pieces. The piece that still needs to talk to Stripe and the piece that needs to get ready to talk to Stripe or handle the response from Stripe. So the duplicate cart part gets pushed down and remains in the demilitarized zone and the rest that does some bookkeeping stuff, hey, it doesn't talk to Stripe at all. So where, the inter where there used to be an interface, or sorry, now I could, if I wanted to, move that into the happy zone. But it has details about Stripe, right? Because its whole job Not necessarily. is to things what it, what it might Well, so what it has is it has, it has, so this is where it gets a bit fuzzy. Um, is it stuff that's specific to Stripe or is it stuff that just happens to be the way Stripe does things? I don't know. That depends. In the worst case, um, a concept about the way Stripe happens to do things might leak into the happy zone, but that's okay because I'm not making a distinction between domain logic and application logic. That's not the distinction that makes that's interesting to me at the moment. What matters to me is what code can run entirely in memory, what code needs to integrate with Stripe. That's all I'm interested in for now because the, the stuff that needs to integrate with Stripe wants integrated tests and the stuff that can run in the happy zone can either just run in memory or can use test doubles. So how do you? And I'll want to like, run those tests more often. So what happens, as I said, is that the the stuff that really needs to talk to Stripe stays in the demilitarized zone, and the stuff that's different might be able to pull up into the happy zone. And yeah, the last layer of the happy zone looks a little stripeish, but I'll bet you if you keep going for a while, you'll end up seeing that it doesn't really depend on Stripe so much as it depends on some abstraction that Stripe exposes itself as. Yeah, in the sense that it doesn't depend on a network request to Stripe for it to do its job. It's right, still, but it it's might still depend on like, well, these are the JSON keys that Stripe uses to represent right. the amount so you're what sending. It's, or exactly. Whatever. So what it depends on is a billing service that operates over JSON or a billing service that uses OAuth 2 or a billing service that uses a database or a billing service that uses the active record pattern, something like that, as opposed to Stripe. That's another area where, again, if we try to think too much about the difference between business logic and application logic or between their stuff and our stuff, we might get a little confused about what something is. Is it domain, strictly speaking, domain or not? And then we, you know, those are, those are fun lunchtime conversations, but they're not really all that valuable. So I'm more concerned with What's the stuff where we absolutely have to call Stripe for the test to be meaningful? And what's the stuff where we could take Stripe out of the picture and the test can still be meaningful? The, the problem that I've seen there and the risk that I think you run by extracting as many little things as you can like this is you're creating more opportunities for APIs to get out of sync. You know what I mean? Like, and that's, that's why it's even more important if we're going to do this. It's, uh, it's more important. This, this has to do with sort of... Um, understanding the contract between pieces and articulating it precisely. So this goes, all, this goes back to the key lesson from integrated tests or a scam. Um, 
and I, I won't go through the, the, the talk, but the, one of the punchlines is in order to be able to isolate things from each other, you need to be able to very precisely articulate the contracts between them. So the contract is just what behavior is the client justified in depending on? So the, you know, one, of the, one of the statements about the contract of list is um, no matter what list I start with, if I add the string hello and then I call contains hello, that must return true. And if I call index of hello, that has to return a valid index according to whatever index scheme your list mm -hmm. library uses. That's a statement of the contract of list. That's behavior that any client of list should be able to depend on no matter what implementation of list you have. That's what allows us to have an interface in the first place. That's what allows us to replace any implementation list of list with any other implementation of list without the slightest bit of concern or lack of confidence that the system will behave correctly. That's the whole point of abstraction of, um, of or not the point, but that is the necessary condition for abstraction to work. If I don't know what you, how you're going to behave, I can't depend on an, 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 on an abstraction of you. I have to depend on the real you and hardwire myself to you directly and deal with whatever fluctuations in behavior you have. And this is where I think a lot of people, this is one of those uncomfortable things that is easy for a consultant to say, but is nonetheless true. And that is that if you want to have isolated tests, then you have to take the time to articulate those contracts precisely. I'm sorry, but there's no free lunch. There's no get out of jail free card here. And that's exactly the, that's exactly the same problem as the problem you mentioned. So, you know, if I, if I partition things too finely, or as I partition things more finely, then I'm going to have to be really, really clear about how the pieces talk to each other. Yeah, that's called programming, right? That's, in, in order to, that's how we have pieces. If you want modularity, the only way modularity works is you have to have confidence in what that module does, in the interface and the contract of that module, so that you don't have to look inside to see what it does, to verify what it does. You can just say, look, okay, it says that it's going to behave like this. I can depend on those behaviors. When I put the two things together, they'll just work. That's what modularity is. So if you're not prepared to articulate the contract with that level of precision, you're never going to achieve modularity. You're not going to get the benefits of modularity. Doesn't it seem like you might be creating more work for yourself, though? Because like now, just because of the fact that you abstracted out this small piece that knows how to convert you know, whatever data came out of the center of your application into the particular format that Stripe wants from the thing that's actually going to send that to Stripe, you have to write a bunch of extra tests to cover things that if you're not careful, can fall out of sync with each other? I don't know. To me, it's an interesting trade-off, I think. Well, so in a sense, you've kind of fallen into my trap because 20 years ago, when extreme programming was becoming, uh, was becoming known and sort of the, at the, sort of the dawn of the re-revolution, the, the re-emergence of programmer testing, a lot of programmers said, asked that exact question, well, aren't you adding an awful lot of extra work in order to write all these tests for your own code that's tests that the testers used to write for me. And my and I have two answers for that. The first answer is in my experience taking the time to write those tests saves so much in avoiding letting stupid mistakes live that it pays for itself. Um, and the second thing is yeah, it's called programming. You're now congratulations programmer, you're now doing your job. So 20 years ago, um, programmers 
by and large felt justified in believing that they didn't bear responsibility for the correctness of their code. That's what testers were for. Fortunately, that, uh, that attitude has more or less disappeared. Uh, it's still around, um, but a lot more programmers now accept that the basic correctness of their code is entirely within their responsibility. Um, they accept writing, some, doing some kind of programmer testing, even if it's manual poking around in the debugger, but doing it in a systematic way. Um, that's better than what my colleagues did 20 years ago at IBM, which was, you know, go into a trance, write code for six hours, throw it over the wall, and it's the tester's problem now. Um, so what you're, what you're hinting at or what you're hitting on to me is the same argument. So on the one hand, yes, uh, it seems like a lot of extra work, but I find that it's actually not the extra work pays itself back in not having to write the same integrated tests over and over again for customer product, uh, order, um, and every other domain object that then has to interact with either a database or a uh, web service or whatever. Because I notice that, you know, when, like, there's this thing that we always get wrong when we connect to messaging systems. Wouldn't it be nice if we could figure out the pattern for how we talk to the messaging system, put that behind some adapters, focus that complication in one place, abstract that complication away, and then the rest of our code doesn't worry about that anymore. It just works. That's like container-managed transactions, right? Container-managed database transactions, when we first started using them as part of uh, EJBs uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, um, seemed like awesome. So now the whole protocol is I do stuff, and if I want to roll back, I throw an exception. Otherwise, I assume that I should commit the transaction. That's fantastic. I don't have to do any, if, as long as I'm doing simple, single phase transactions, I don't have to write any transaction code anymore. Instead, all I have to do is either throw an exception or don't. That seems pretty good to me. All I'm saying is let's take it one step farther and write a handful of tests that show that indeed, when I connect to the container managed transaction service and I throw a tr an exception, I verify in the database that the transaction was in fact rolled back. And when I return a, a normal value, whether I return null or a real object or not, or even void, return nothing, um, I see that that transaction's been committed. That's like five tests. That doesn't seem like that much work to me. And once I've written those five tests, everywhere else I work in the system now, anytime I plug into that container managed transaction library, I now have confidence that I understand the protocol. It doesn't sound like that much extra work for me for what it buys me. I don't have to check that that protocol works every single time. Um, I don't have to choose between either hoping it works or checking that every time I throw an exception from one of my uh, entity beans or session beans um, that the transaction rolls back. And yet I've seen teams do that because they get into the habit of writing the same tests for every new session being, every new entity being type for customer and obd and uh, order and product and so on. Instead of isolating that to just the library and saying, okay, I'm gonna double check my understanding of, of the container managed transaction service that this uh, web app container provides me. Um, I do that once and now I know how WebSphere version 3.2.2 works, period.
And when we upgrade WebSphere, then I can run those tests again and make sure it works the same way. So what do you think the best way to kind of achieve that is? Do you think it's best to try and figure that stuff out the very first time you're building something that's uh, using anything like that? Or do you think it's better to pay attention to when it feels like you're doing something that kind of feels like it's worried about the same setup as some other test and figure out if there's a way that you can extract that? I, I prefer to do it, uh, well, it depends on what I'm trying to do. If I'm trying to perfect the technique, if I'm trying to practice the technique because I'm not used to the concept of, of working this way, then I will overdo it in that direction, like I've done with every other technique I've ever learned, right? Um, do it even when it seems like it's more work than necessary because you're practicing the technique. Assume for the moment that I understand the technique, have used it, uh, and now want to actually just get stuff done. As I've said a couple of times already, I don't worry as much about where code goes as where code flows. So to me, it's the same thing. So um, when code flows out of the demilitarized zone into the happy zone, then that's the same as me uh, changing from slightly bigger tests that test a larger adapter to breaking it apart into testing the integration point and then testing the stuff that comes right before it. So rather than worrying about trying to get this isolation absolutely perfectly right from the beginning, what matters to me is when I notice uh, one of the biggest, um, one of the most helpful things that I notice in tests is when I am tempted to copy and paste details from one test to the next, not because I want to change those details for the new special case, but because I need to run that stuff as well to make the other special case work. We've had that experience, right? Yeah. I'm testing this thing and I need to run five lines of setup code, or I need to run five lines of code before I hit my first assertion. I copy and paste the five lines of code to the next test, I change two lines of code, and I don't change the other three. I look in those other three lines of code, and I notice that there's a value that's not important for the test, but I have to provide something because I have to put a value there. Yeah. That's an example of an irrelevant detail in a test. When I see irrelevant details pop up in a test, that is a sign to me that my test is bigger than it needs to be, that I could break those things in, I could break it into two smaller pieces. That's the same as noticing that there's some bookkeeping code in my adapter. There's some code in my adapter that doesn't actually need to integrate with a third-party library that I could pull into the happy zone if I wanted to. If I only have, if I'm only using that bookkeeping code in one or two places, I might not want to pull it out because I don't know that that is a real pattern yet. That could just be a coincidence. When I see it three or four or five times, there's probably going to be a 7th and a 12th and a 37th. So now's a good time to consider pulling that, seriously consider pulling that stuff apart. Well, it's the same thing. One of the ways that I can detect it is by literally seeing duplicated production code in the adapter classes. Another way to detect it, a more subtle way to detect it, is to see duplicate irrelevant details in the tests for those adapters. Why do I need to change this part of the test but not that part of the test? Why do I need to provide a value here even though I'm not checking it? So... This is, this is, you know, one of the subtler forms of duplication that anybody out there who maybe has been practicing TDD for six months to two years, who has, who feels pretty comfortable with noticing duplicate code and production code uh, and using that to pull things apart, who's comfortable seeing duplicate code in tests and moving stuff into setup. Um, this is sort of the next kind of duplication to look for. And that is when I have to copy and paste irrelevant details, because that's usually a sign that I'm running A, B, and C, even though B is the only part I actually want to check. 
but I have to run A and I have to run C because they happen to be dependent on each other right now. The way the implementation is, is the way that I've designed things right now, A, B, and C are all together in one place. Even though I really don't care about A and I really don't care about C, I just need A to get to B, and B and C happen to be in the same place. Well, if I notice that I'm copying and pasting stuff about A and C in my tests, but I'm never changing them from test to test, I'm only changing the part that cares about B, because B is the only part I'm checking. Now I, I get the idea that B perhaps could be separated from A and C. Well, what would that mean? Especially in these adapter layers, that's important because it's the difference between having a thousand integrated tests and a hundred. It's the difference between having integrated tests that still depend on some concepts in my domain for no good reason, and having integrated tests that only know about Stripe, or about the database, or about WebSockets, or about Meteor, or whatever you're connecting to. Awesome. Well, I think maybe that is a good place to uh, start wrapping up because we've been going for uh, about an hour now and I don't want to uh, steal too much more of your uh, time based on what we scheduled out. But is there anything else that you wanted to uh, get into or talk about or share briefly before we get going? Uh, so just a really quick summary about the, about the, the key points I think uh, I want to focus on. You know, don't, don't, try to, don't worry so much about where code goes. Think about how code flows. Um, I feel much more, I, I'm much happier when I feel comfortable moving code around than I am about putting code in the right place. Because if I, if I feel comfortable moving code around, it doesn't matter if I so-called get it wrong today because I can make it better tomorrow. That was one of the things I loved from Brian Merrick was, uh, you know, my goal is simply to be less wrong than I was yesterday. Um, another thing is, um, you know, I don't care about, I'm more interested in how many tests I need, to in, I need to run integrated with the stuff I don't like to run and which tests could run entirely in memory. And that's, that's why I don't worry about the difference between domain code and application code or whatever. I care about what can go in the happy zone, what needs to go in the demilitarized zone or the adapter layer. And my goal is to make the adapter layer as thin as possible to make the code flow into the happy zone as much as I can. And if you try to write, if code in the happy zone tries to depend on code outside of the happy zone, you're fired. You can be rehired if you extract an interface and move that interface into the happy zone. Um, so that's, that's sort of a, a quick summary. But I do want to do some uh, shameless plugging. Yeah, go for so, it. Um, uh, you can find, so uh, I know this was an awfully abstract kind of talk and that uh, it's hard to do this without diagrams and especially for all the people who like to rely on diagrams to help understand what's going on. I apologize for that. Um, I was waving my hands in nice diagrams, but you couldn't see it. Um, uh, if you'd like to read more, uh, go to jbrains.ca, J-B-R-A-I-N-S.ca. You can find the links from there to either read my articles, uh, get in touch with me. You can ask me a question at ask.jbrains.ca. Uh, and if, you've, if you're so impressed with what you've heard over the last hour that you absolutely have to learn test-driven development from me or want to... Uh, you know, want to make sure that your understanding of test-driven development is solid and that you, you want to learn high-discipline uh, approaches to test-driven development, then please go to online-training.jbrains.ca and uh, you want to sign up for the world's best introduction to test-driven development. It really is the world's best introduction to test-driven development, um, especially if you're one of those people who thinks that TDD is hacking and don't think that there's a... I will show you one of the world's most disciplined test-driven development practitioners. 
Um, other programmers are that I work with are surprised to see how disciplined I am. Uh, the first two, the first third of the training course is available as a free preview. The course is very affordably priced, um, and more online courses are coming over the next uh, year or so, uh, such as uh, Surviving Legacy Code and uh, Surviving Agile Transitions and Value Driven Product Development. So, uh, buy my stuff. Um, it's uh, much cheaper. Tell your manager to buy my stuff, and that uh, uh, a ten-person online training license is a lot cheaper than putting me on a plane. Well, it's been a, a pleasure having you on. Thanks for coming on and uh, chatting about this stuff with me. It was uh, absolutely really fun to go over some of this stuff. I really appreciate it, and I especially appreciate being able to be on any kind of Canadian content. That just I feel like I'm doing my I'm doing my patriotic duty. Awesome. Yeah, I wonder if I'm subject to the twenty uh, percent. Canadian content laws that we have here. Uh, if they catch me, I will be in trouble for not having enough Canadians on the podcast. Well, as I understand, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if the rules have changed. In the old days, I know the rules were 40% uh, Canadian and 10% French, donc uh, je mm. peux jeter un petit peu de français là-bas pour, uh, pour, uh, uh, pour uh, satisfaire le, le, le CRTC. Je sais pas comment faire, dire ça en français, but uh, there you go. There's 0.2% uh, of French content to help the Canadian laws there. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Joe. Um, if anybody's interested in show notes for this episode, they're going to be at fullstackradio.com slash 38, if I'm not mistaken. Um, rate and review the show on iTunes. That's really helpful. If you got any comments, throw them on uh, the page there or shoot me an email. Thanks again to uh, Laracasts for sponsoring the podcast. As always, lots of great uh, testing content to check out there. See you next time, everyone.